Hi, friends. Before we start this week, I just want to note that this episode was recorded before the protest demanding justice for Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. If we sound overly jovial, it's because we recorded this episode before the Black community reminded us of the racism and racial violence they face every day and the responsibility we have to speak up and fight against racism. While we are returning to your regularly scheduled bike shed, we encourage you to keep educating yourself and fighting for radical change against inequity. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So hey, Chris, how's your week going? Uh, it's going well. Yeah, we're actually recording a little bit earlier in the week this week. So uh, actually an episode just went live this morning and due to the way we record them and then the way we release them, it's always like this little time machine back in time. So the thing that we're talking about that I'm talking about in that episode feels like it was years ago, but is also super relevant to the thing that I want to talk about today. Uh, man, time's weird. But yeah, one thing that I did want to circle back to that we talked about a few episodes back, it's prettier Ruby. So I had said that we finally used it on a project, that I loved it. I've now brought it across to a few other things. Broadly, I was a huge fan in that episode. In this episode, I am now even more so of a fan. So I had... Ooh, okay, <laughs> you, you really scared me there for a moment. <laughs> I know, that was a roller coaster of emotion, I'm sure. So my only caveats in the first episode where I was talking about it was that I really didn't like the choices that were made in terms of the default formatting. And your comments were interesting to me because you pointed out that like, actually, I, I thought it was sort of made towards ThoughtBot style, so it probably would match that. I don't know exactly what the story is, but it turns out there are a bunch of configuration options. I just needed to RTFM, it turns out. And so the particular ones that I was running into were single quotes versus double quotes, which is very minor, but it was the sort of thing that like I would prefer if it were double quotes. We ended up with single quotes in the app that I'm on, whatever, that's probably going to stay. But the other one that we were running into was trailing commas. And that's one that I actually care about a lot more because I end up making mistakes. Like if we have a method call that's broken across multiple lines and we don't have trailing commas, when I add a new thing to that and I forget to put the comma on the previous line, then I have a syntax error and I have to go fix it and it's annoying. Or the other version of it is that it introduces diff noise. So if I add that new item, I'm also adding a comma to the previous line. That line should not be in the diff and yet it is. Uh, but again, that one has a configuration option. So in reality, I can I can make the best of the world. But actually to go even further and to compliment everyone involved in that project, one thing that I noticed was that I actually wanted probably slightly different values between JavaScript and Ruby. And so like JavaScript, I want single quotes, but Ruby, I want double quotes. And initially I was like, oh, that's unfortunate that those are gonna be coupled together. But I started to look at the configuration options and it turns out that the way Kevin initially introduced the options on the Ruby side is that they use slightly different names for the options. So they're actually independent and you can have everything you want and it is fantastic and it's such a great project and I'm happy. That's awesome. I didn't even think about that last time we were chatting about Prettier Ruby and you'd mentioned that some of the styling you wanted to be different. I forgot that Kevin had mentioned that there is a way to set the configuration so that if you wanted to tweak some of the styles that's going to default to. I am curious, you said that you want single quotes for JavaScript and double quotes for Ruby. What's the logic behind that desire? Well, it's all just random opinions, I think. In double quotes in Ruby actually are meaningfully different, whereas in JavaScript, there is no, as far as I understand it, no meaningful difference between single and double quotes, whereas backtick quotes in JavaScript are interesting. 
But I think it's just the convention in those communities. So the JavaScript code that I see the vast majority of the time is using single quotes, with the exception that in JSX it uses double quotes because that's like HTML. So it's really like each camp sort of has its own thing, and I want to fit well with that. I'm fine with doing whatever the project is doing, especially if Prettier is doing all the work for me and I don't actually have to think about it. But it was really nice that it between Prettier running for JavaScript and Prettier Ruby, there is the ability to have that distinction if you want it. Okay. Yeah, that resonates with me. Because you're now that you've mentioned that, I am more accustomed to always seeing like single quotes more in like JavaScript frameworks. But when it comes to Ruby, I've seen, yeah, I've seen a mix. So I was just curious your thoughts on the matter. I'm mostly in the camp that I don't care. That's a good camp. <laughs> I, I used to care more. Back in the day, I, I cared a lot, but I care far less these days. I think that was how I described it when I initially said it. it was like, I really dislike this. But you know what I dislike more? Having to format my own code. So we're done. I'm taking it. It's fine. And I only made the one upgrade, actually, which was to add trailing commas, because that one's, in my mind, really meaningful. Whereas the double quotes, single quotes, like, whatever. They're quotes. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the trailing commas. I do prefer that as well for the reasons that you highlighted earlier. And jokingly, when I was pairing with someone as we were working through some code, and I was like, are you a trailing comma fan, non-trailing comma fan? Like, I wasn't sure which way to go versus just defaulting to my mode. I was curious which one they prefer. And they're like, no, I, I prefer not to have a trailing comma. And I was like, okay. I was like, we'll fight about that later. I'll table it for now and we'll keep going. And they just kind of laughed, which was great because that was my intent. I was like, well, we'll circle back to this because it's just pedantic and doesn't matter. But... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I prefer the, the trailing commas. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my quick summary back on uh, Prettier Ruby. So very excited about that. But uh, yeah, what's up in your world? Uh, so I discovered a new fabulous testing tip that has been totally life altering. And I can't believe that I didn't know about it until just yesterday when someone showed me this amazing tip. Uh, I don't know if I've hyped it up enough. You have. But I'll dive I am into concerned it. that this is gonna... <laughs> let's go. Let's do this. I suspect it's going to be one of those testing tips that a lot of people who are more experienced in JavaScript frameworks are going to be like, oh, yeah, like that's that's totally a thing. I do it all the time. But then for people who are like me, who have spent less time in that world, then it's really like amazing to know about this and how to find this. So I'll just dive into it. Uh, so working with Ember, when a test fails in the failure message, it includes a file name that reads like test.js, and then it includes some numbers after that file. I believe the first number represents like the line number that's in that minify.js file, and the second number represents like the character on that line number. I think that's true. So to give a full example, it's like test.js colon, let's say 1200 colon 22. So line 1200 character 22. And looking at that, when I'm looking at the test failure, that really means nothing to me. It's not showing me like exactly like where in my test I can go and identify what exactly is failing. And often some of the test failure messages aren't very clear. So I've been struggling with when a test fails, like really knowing exactly why it's failing. And it always feels it takes some detective work to dig into. Uh, so the amazing tip that uh, one of the developers that I'm working with shared with me is that if you copy that information, so if you copy the name of the file, the test.js, and then the line number and the character number, and then you open up the developer console, and then you can do command P to then search for that file and paste that in. It takes you directly to that line. Now you're still in the minified JS file. So it's there, but it's still not as great to look at. But then if you click on the line that's next to it, then it takes you directly to the actual test file that you're in and shows you the true line that it's failing on. And just that little bit of like testing improvement in my world has just been amazing. And I'm so excited about it. Wow, there's a I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. 
So this is QUnit, am I right? Is that what uh, Ember uses? It's using Testum under the hood. And then, yeah, that's for our test runner. And then we're using Chai and Mocha. Uh, so Chai for assertions and then Mocha. So I don't think we have QUnit. Okay. I feel like that might have been back in the day or I'm just making it up. But uh, are these running in the browser? They are. Yep. So these are the unit specs, but they run in the browser so that they have JS, DOM, context, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you're clicking through to a minified test. So there's some CLI build thing that's running that's serving up that test file. And then you're getting into a minified file within that. Exactly. Yeah. It'll bring up like a Chrome browser, uh, what it's running in, and then it will show the error message that something failed. And then, yeah, I can use that information to then navigate to the actual source JS file as to where it failed. But even then, it's still like that minified version. So it's readable, but it's still not showing me the exact. So if I were running a bunch of tests, if I'm wanting to run one test file, then I know exactly which test file I'm in, where it's failing. But if I'm running a bunch and one of those line fails, then that's definitely less easier to look at. Yeah, definitely parts of this just sound like testing ergonomics not being ideal. Like, this isn't a thing in RSpec. RSpec, I've been now working in a Ruby and Rails code base, and RSpec's so nice. My goodness, is RSpec a wonderful testing library. It really sets the bar so ridiculously high. But it also doesn't seem to be like an unachievable high. The thing that we've talked about a bunch of times of just like running one file, I just want to run this one spec. Why is that hard? And then right now what you're saying of like, there's a failure, but I don't know the line. And then you just learn this, which sounds like it's a, like you said, life altering tip, but it shouldn't even be a thing. So I appreciate where you're going with this because this was sort of like the roller coaster of emotions that I went through. Like I first saw the tip and I was like, that's amazing. This is what I wanted. I wanted to know where this exact line is because I'm tired of like hunting and trying to, you know, use additional logic to figure out like where this test is failing. And then as soon as I saw that, I'm like, this is great. And then after like I came down for a moment realizing that, okay, now I know how to find it. I'm like, this kind of sucks. Like that I have to go through this path, that I have to take the name of the file, the line number, that I have to do like the command P to search for that file, find the line, click on the line, and then get to the file. So I, I rode that wave of like, oh my gosh, I have, I now know where to find the thing that I want. But then I was like, this, yeah, I agree with you that it is kind of like still a crummy experience that I have to go through that flow. And maybe there's another life altering test tip that's out there that I haven't found yet. But this is, this is my current phase. This is my current state of testing life. Well, I'm very glad that you found this tip at a minimum because it sounds like it is a very meaningful upgrade. Getting to the actual failure message in the line where the failure is is a big deal. Really helps with uh, working through those things. And it sounds like there are some fun little things you picked up along the way for the Chrome DevTools. So that's a plus. I don't know if you were using the Command P trick before. No. Are there other Command P tricks that I should be aware of? I think so. There, I don't know them particularly well. I know of that one to like pull up a particular file, although it's so rare that I do that because I'm dealing with concatenated combined assets and that whole thing in JavaScript where I don't know of any project or any situation right now where folks are writing JavaScript, just raw native JavaScript, especially with modules. It's technically a thing that the browsers support, but the number of files and like HTTP2 never quite landing in the way that we hoped it would, or I don't even know that it would solve it because you still need to send like many, 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 many files over the wire. And so you end up having to bundle and then you're transpiling and minifying and doing all that other stuff. And so it just inherently is a, I don't know, a weirder world to exist in. And so there's a bunch of tricks like that, but I, I haven't used many of them. I know you can take a full-size screenshot. That's one that I know, and I really like that. So the full height of the page, and it'll scroll it for you, and that's great. I know about that one. <laughs> that one's cool. 
Uh, yeah, I have found that well, that's been one of the nice parts is working with Ember that it's leveling up some of like my dev tool tricks and knowledge and how to debug. And that's something it's it's kind of like we had this conversation just last episode where we were talking about like SQL and how it's something we keep revisiting and leveling up on. I feel that's the way it is for me, like dev tools. Like I know just enough to get by, but then I'll continue to like add a new trick to my belt. And that's great. Like I really love that I can revisit that space and learn something new and helpful. But yeah, that's my hyped up, exciting uh, tip from the week that is helping me out greatly with test. How about you? What else is going on in your world? I think as of today, I have finished a, I don't know, vision quest nonsense adventure into the world of caching. And I am, you know how they say caching is one of them like classically hard problems. I still, I started this work and I was like, no. I got this. This will be easy. I'll just fix the caching. I broke it like three times. I got lost along the way. I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I just had my brain was like, oh, wait, but what about this? And I went into my office, which is like right across from my bedroom. And I have a large whiteboard on the wall and I just scribbled some notes on the whiteboard. And then the next morning when I was on standup call, the whiteboard is sort of like just out of frame in my video. And one of the people from the client that I'm working with was just like, what's uh, what's that the stuff written on the board behind you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot about the caching. <laughs> Was it helpful, the thing that you got up in the middle of the night and wrote on the whiteboard, or was it like nonsense? One of them was real. One of them turns out to not be relevant. They were both just acronyms. So the two acronyms that I had written were TTL and SWR. So those are time to live. So basically having an expiration on this cache. And then SWR for stale while revalidate, I believe, is the terminology there, which is an HTTP caching thing. But it basically says like, serve it while you check the back end, serve the cached version while you go to the back end to see if there's an updated version. And that can give you truly idealized caching behavior because no user ever waits for the long running process that generates the cache version. They always get served directly from the cache. But based on a bunch of the other constraints that I had with what I was trying to build here, I was not able to take advantage of stale wall revalidate. But I did get to use a TTL, so that's fun. One of the acronyms that I scribbled in the middle of the night came true. (laughs) Are you a Seinfeld fan? I've seen, I'd say most of it, yeah. I can't help but think of this as you're describing this experience. There's an episode where Jerry wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks of a really hilarious joke and tries to scribble it on a notepad. But then come morning, he can't read his own handwriting. So he spends like the whole episode getting people trying to read the note and tell him what this hilarious joke was that he wrote. And I think in the end, he still never figures it out or something like that. But I'm imagining you have a Jerry moment where you wake up and you're like, this is gold, but I don't know what it is. Now, thankfully, I wrote it very legibly, which is impressive because I didn't turn on the lights. I didn't want to like fully wake myself up. I was just like, got to write this down more so that I could go back to sleep. I was trying to like get the things out of my head so that I could then rest properly rather than these are pivotal, the most important things anyone's ever thought about caching. They were just stuff that was rattling around in my noggin. But yeah, so it's it's been an adventure. So the issue that we had in the application that I'm working on is we have a Rails app which serves the REST API for two different mobile clients, an Android and an iOS client. So we have a bunch of different endpoints that are serving up content. In this case, it's a platform somewhat similar to Upcase. So there's a lot of content in the literal like their videos and courses and they're tied together and things like that. And so we have a handful of endpoints that are sort of core to the application. They get hit pretty hard throughout the day, like hundreds of thousands of requests. And so we want them to be as performant as possible. And they're fetching large graphs of data. So yes, of course, I did think of GraphQL. 
but we set that aside for now because that's that's a bigger story. But what we want to do is cache those, but we want to cache those with a couple of constraints. So one constraint is we ideally would have content-based caching. So if we update the content, the cache should invalidate and then we should regenerate the next time someone makes the request. That was the main thing that we were missing in the previous version. The other things that we had are time-based expiry. So that's where the TTL comes into play. I wanted to make sure it would expire after some amount of time because we have certain content that is timely within the app. Actually, thinking back to the episode two weeks ago, something like that, I, I forget how time works, but where I was talking about writing a window function and having to do some things for like there's daily content in this system, that daily content will change over time. The, like, res- the JSON response will change over time based on that daily content. In regards to setting that time as to when something's going to expire, so when you're talking about that, that's going to change daily, what is the time frame that you set? Like, that's one of those things that's like, when should I invalidate my cache that I don't have a good answer for? So I'm curious what answer you came up with. Uh, I went with once a day for that because I wanted the cache to be as long lived as possible. But once a day, because it's daily content, felt like it should be safe. The content's actually planned out in advance. So I think I could have actually been much more conservative and said like once every 30 days and then someone's going to get the new relevant content. But I'm trying to think of like the failure mode for this. Any content changes would bust the cache. So that's good. And we don't have to worry about that. So it's really just like nothing has happened in the app for 45 days. And thus we're serving a response that doesn't include the future daily content. I think that's the failure mode. And so realistically, I probably could have gone with like a 45 day expiration, but I didn't want to think that hard about it. And I didn't want to be wrong. So I went with one day because that seemed like a number. I like it. This was, it's not even that hard. At the end of the day, when I look at the solution that I came up with, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I just put some caching into the app. It's not that hard. But the amount of back and forth that I had and the amount of like, I scribbled a bunch of diagrams and I'm trying to understand it. And I think what ended up happening is I was trying to hold too many constraints at the same time. And I ended up trying for a while to find a solution that matched all of the constraints. And I had to drop one or two of the constraints and then the solution was quite obvious. But there's a while where I was losing it in the middle. But yeah, so the content-based expiration was important. Time-based expiration was also important. But then ideally, we want to cache as much as possible beyond that. Like, we want to do as little work as humanly possible in terms of the server, not me as a human. Well, I mean, I guess both, but more so the server. So what the app had at the time that I started working on this was action caching around the index endpoints. So mostly these were index endpoints because those are the big ones and the ones that really mattered. So there was action caching with a one hour expiry. And that one hour expiry was not because that made sense. It was because the content would change behind the scenes and they wanted to make sure that it wouldn't stay stale for too long after a content change. And actually one of the other things that was happening is a lot of manual cache busting. So going into memcachier, which is what we were using for this and just busting the whole like flush it, the whole thing. Because Memcashier does not have a good way to selectively invalidate things, as far as I know. When you're saying that it's a lot of manual caching, so in the code, when something's getting updated, there's a lot of like code that's executing, like clear the cache and update, or you're talking about like behind the scenes that's happening? I'm curious where like the manual part is that you mentioned. Uh, behind the scenes. So someone going into the Memcashier add-on on Heroku and clicking the flush the cache button. Ah, uh, okay. But the unfortunate part there is it flushes the entire cache. So all of the actions are now invalidated when really we only needed you know content that's changed. Oof. 
Yeah. So that was part of it. But then the other bit, so action caching was the primary thing. And so action caching, I think, does a before filter, before action. I forget which. I think they're before filters now. Is that right? Within Rails? They got renamed at one point. That sounds right. I want to say before action, before filter. I don't know. We should know this. <laughs> we should. Well, I mean, Rails tells me when I get it wrong these days. So, But I believe action caching just wraps a before filter around it, and then it determines if it needs to run it. And it's pretty aggressive in the caching. You can do a little bit of logic in terms of the cache path and say, you know, this is the way you determine if it's valid. But it's acting at a higher level. So it's basically about the params coming in. That's what you can do the any sort of conditional caching logic. But it's still a pretty high level thing. So you're basically like, that thing's cached now, and that's all that's going to happen. And we probably want it a little more granular. But in the methods themselves, we also were using the stale question mark method, which are you familiar with that one? I am, but it's been a while since I've used it where it's going to check, I guess, something to do. I'm going to take a leap of faith here, but it has some intuitive way of checking like the timestamp to see if it's uh, expired. It does indeed. Although the specific thing that stale does, which I was, this is all stuff that I've learned recently. And I'm in that awkward part where I know a bunch of things that I'm going to forget soon, but stale and fresh when is the other equivalent. One is implemented in terms of the other, but they both have to do with e-tags as opposed to actual caching on the server side. So stale and fresh when will calculate the e-tag and then do conditional gets. So if the e-tag is computed to be the same as the one that came in with the request, then it will short circuit there, do absolutely no work, and respond with a 304 immediately. So in theory, you can actually get amazing performance because you can be like, just do nothing. Look up basically one updated at timestamp from the record. So it ends up looking up select maximum updated at from whatever the resource that you're interacting with, whatever the collection is, which is great, but does not really mesh with the other stuff that I had going on. And so that part was the, the bit that I think I struggled with. I really wanted to get caching on the server side to sync up with the very optimistic e-tag based sort of do no work version of things. And I could not find a way to merge those two worlds. Uh, so the, the version of the universe that I've constructed in my head now is that there's like true, there's actually, if we were to run this controller action, hit this endpoint and not have any caching, what's the response that we would get? At any given time, that may change. So that's true. That's like the zero version. Then the thing that I wanted to introduce was content-based caching on the server side. And so for that, Rails has the cache method, which does a great job. And it does content-based cache keys. So it'll say like, oh, you're looking at this collection. What's the maximum updated at timestamp? And it comes up with very smart names. This is the thing that was put out as fragment caching or Russian doll caching. But it was mostly talked about in terms of the view layer. And so you do nested versions of these sort of caches in the view layer. But you can also do them in the controller. It's basically the same method shared across the two contexts. So that's what I'm using now with a one-day TTL. And I have opted out of all e-tag-based stuff. All manual e-tag-based stuff, sorry. Must be clear there. Because Rails is still, it's actually rack e-tag is one of the middleware that's part of just the default stack. It's going to compute an e-tag on every request. And it's going to add that in there. And it's super fast and super good. I was concerned, actually, because now, instead of doing stale, which would opt out based on a very simple e-tag generation, I was generating this 100 kilobyte response and computing the e-tag in every request based on the new caching that I had set up. But I did some performance analysis, and it's like one millisecond to do the e-tag digest for a 100 kilobyte JSON response. So I was like, cool, good job, everybody making stuff fast, so I don't have to care about it. 
uh, just let the, the framework do the e-tags. I'm never going to talk about e-tags again, was my takeaway from that analysis. Is that what led you down this adventure? Is that you were solely trying to improve performance? Were you running into issues where users were seeing like stale content? Uh, it was mostly we wanted content-based caching, but we also wanted a what's the story around caching? Like, how should we be doing this? And within the app that I'm working on, there have been a lot of, well, let's try this for caching. Let's try this. Let's try this. And so the goal here was to get the, like, what's the best answer we can come up with? And particularly, the very important constraints were, let's make sure this doesn't require human intervention to bust the cache on a regular basis. And let's make sure that it's still up to date over time. And so I was trying to solve for those constraints, and I ended up with the solution that I did, which is basically use the cache helper, add an expires in TTL, do not use stale or fresh when or any of the other manual e-tag things. Just let rack e-tag do its work. Awesome. Yeah, I forgot that you'd mentioned that someone was manually like going in there and clearing the cache. This episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments with over 400 integrations. With Datadog's OOTB, customizable dashboards, and algorithmic alerts, your engineering teams can adopt an agile workflow as all teams can work out of the same monitoring platform and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Datadog breaks down the silos within an organization's teams and removes blind spots that could cause potential downtime. Give it a try with a free 14-day trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt after installing the agent. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed. That's all one word, T-H-E-B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Ooh, this is one of those that like, there's so much like unique kind of specialized information that you just shared that while sharing it here, like on a bike shed is fabulous. But I also would love in my mind, if I were doing this, like a blog post just for like self-reference, because it's one of those things like, I know I would forget after spending like a week in that world, but then given like another week out of that world, as someone revisits with those acronyms, I'd be like, I don't know, I've, I've forgotten. Like I used everything I knew, I put it into the code and then I walked away. <laughs> Do you ever store stuff like that? Well, so like I wrote a uh, basically a short novel in the commit message. So I've got that as a reference. Uh, this is actually, I'm just looking it up now. It's like an almost a net neutral lines of code change. There's a lot of spec changes, but the actual controller logic, there's very little change. And then there's a lot of commit message, which basically describes everything. It provides that summary at the top that says, like, here's the recommended strategy for caching of content-based endpoints moving forward. But yeah, I, I definitely am in that place where I'm like, I feel like I know a bunch of stuff now, and I already feel like it's it's decaying, and I will not have that. And I'll be like, I knew this once in the long, long ago. I had it all. And especially because it, it feels like it was a really hard-earned knowledge like, I thought this was going to be easy. And then I tried and I failed. And then I tried and I failed. I also broke production once. That's a separate story that we'll probably revisit in a future episode because I haven't figured out how to completely fix the... <laughs> I fixed the production failure, but, you know, stuff happens. I like how our weekly bike sheds, we have two now where you get to say that you broke production. <laughs> are, we, are we going for three? <laughs> I'm hoping not. Everyone was really nice about it, too. They were just like, yeah, it happens. I was like, I know. But yeah, there's there's fun stuff to poke at in there, too. But yeah, I'm very much at that point where like, ideally within this application, we have a clear answer around things. And then the counterpoint to what I said, so all of that was true of content-based stuff, but then for user-specific things, it's like, here's a user's favorites, that kind of thing in a system like this, in my mind, doesn't make sense to cache on the server side, but it does make sense because they're going to be potentially large responses, very user-specific, et cetera, et cetera, to use e-tags heavily. So in those cases, I am still using stale or fresh when. 
but no server-side caching. So I sort of opted into one or the other. That's the mindset that I'm in, but not both. And that's where the issues previously were coming up. Mm, okay, so you have a couple controllers that for like the favorites list are still using, like you said, the e-tags, but then the other controllers where you're trying to approach caching in a different way, you're no longer using those helpers. Interesting. Yep. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me that you would yeah. want to do less caching on the server side for that type of list. Yeah, it's data that changes regularly enough. And it's also a big enough cache space where there's like, we have 100,000 users in the system. So there are 100,000 different cacheable items there. Whereas for these content endpoints, it's the content, there's one of it. And so that totally makes sense to cache server side, whereas 100,000 personal favorites lists, that cache is going to turn over so quickly that I, I didn't want to do that. And mainly, I would love to find a version where I can unify stale question mark that like, optimistic e-tag generation with the cache method because they're both doing the same sort of thing based on the content that you have passed into this method i will determine if i need to do more work to actually come up with the real answer or can i use the cached version and it's just a question of is it a server-side cache or a client-side cache the main thing that made me think i can't use them together is the lack of the time-based expiry i have no way to expire an e-tag based cache without getting fancier in terms of the cache path that I'm doing. And it basically got to like, I don't want to mess. With, I, I probably could find a way to unify this, but that feels like the sort of thing that I want to do and shouldn't do. Yeah, that, that sounds like it could get tricky diving into that area. But I mean, it's just caching. It's easy, right? We, that's we started that's out my with understanding. That. Caching's super easy. It's easy. <laughs> you just go in and you cache stuff and then it's uh, you invalidate the cache every once in a while. Whenever the stuff changes, you just invalidate the cache. Yeah, no biggie. Straightforward. <laughs> When you were introducing the caching strategy, did you write any tests for this? I did, and I felt really weird about it because I was essentially testing the framework. And we had a conversation in the pull request, myself and the other main developer that works in the Rails code base. We both agreed that because it's such central logic to the app and because we'd gotten it wrong a bunch of times, it made sense to have explicit behavior around the caching, um, which was actually really tricky because caching is a side effect. And so like, how do I test that? That's what I'm super curious about. <laughs> uh, so I ended up, there's a little helper that I found that allows me to enable caching within certain specs so I can add the like annotation tag sort of thing like JS true or other things like that. One of those, so like caching true, that will enable caching just for that spec. So for the actual spec then, I ended up stubbing the serializer. So the serializer is the like inner part that's actually going to do the work. I stubbed the serializer, but I did allow serializer to receive new and call original. So I basically wanted to like spy on the method call and see if it had happened, but let it still happen normally because otherwise things would break downstream if they got nil instead of a hash or whatever. And then I would make the get request and look at the count of times that that method had been called and it should equal the count of records that I have at that point that I've created. It's like create three courses hit the courses endpoint, expect the serializer to have received new three times, then hit the endpoint again, see that it has not hit the serializer, then bust the cache via whatever mechanism. And so typically that was traverse the object list to get to some deeply nested thing and touch that object. And then Rails will do its magic of updating the updated at timestamps all the way up the tree, which will cause it to run again. And so then say expect count times two times that it's been called. That was the best solution that I could come up with. It still felt weird. I also did one for time traveling into the future. So I used the travel to time helpers to do the time-based expiry and make sure that that was working. 
I don't know. That may feel weird, but I like it. Like that feels like the way you just told that testing story to me felt really good. Like it felt very clear as to what's being tested and how it's being tested. You said something interesting that I I forget is something that exists where you said you were spying on it, but then you still wanted to call the original method. What was that statement, that snippet of code that you just said? Uh, The way I have it written is allow serializer to receive new and call original. And so the dot and call original. So when you have the allow to receive new and then return original, what does the return original do? Does it initialize a new object and then calls the normal method on that particular object? I'm trying to imagine what that does. Uh, Yeah, just to clarify, it's and call original. So it's actually just calling through to the underlying thing that you're stubbing. So I don't actually know exactly how our spec wires itself in, but it basically wraps around whatever object you're saying. And it says like, I put a proxy method here. If you call our proxy method, we'll store that, we'll return whatever value you stub, et cetera. Or in this case, it says, I'll note that you called it and I'm going to call the original, get the value and then return that and just allow all the normal wiring to happen. I use that so rarely that that was the thing that gave me pause in writing this, but it seemed to work really well for this case, with the exception that like the serializer getting called was a weird side effect thing. And I wonder if I didn't want to poke at Rails cache directly, say like, I expect Rails cache to get read. That felt weird, but yeah. Yeah, that feels even more low level. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I, I like how you did that. That's just something that I would have I would have stumbled on when I first got there. The fact that I want to spy on something, but then I also still want to continue forward and call the code. So I just wanted to highlight that mostly for myself selfishly. So I'll re- hopefully remember that for the future in case I also need this. But yeah, I actually really like that you added test for this for the reasons that you just said. One, it's really important to the product. Uh, it is a feature. It's something that a person now doesn't have to go do manually and flush the cache. So it's now built into the system. And while the commit message is really nice, commit messages don't verify that we don't break stuff. So the test uh, coverage feels really nice in this case. Yeah, In particular, one of the things that I wanted to make sure I had test coverage around was the full hierarchy of objects. If I interact with a deeply nested object, does that fully bust the cache all the way up? That was the thing that I wanted to check because that requires setting touch true on all of the associations as they're defined in the models. And the cache bit, I trust Rails to do that correctly, but did I wire up all of the relevant pieces in the app to do that correctly? And that's what hopefully this test will ensure. And so if someone like refactors the association down the line, they'll see that this caching test breaks and hopefully heed the warning that that failing test gives them. Heed the warning. (laughs) Man, you've been on quite an adventure between the M plus one query and now caching. Lots of exciting stuff happening in your world. I have. It's been fun. It's a stable app that's been around for a while that has a lot of users. And it's it's the sort of challenge that I really like in contrast to right now I'm working with two clients. And the other client is a very greenfield app that currently has zero users in it. And so it's this perfect dichotomy of greenfield fun. We're building everything from scratch. We get to think about the architecture and all that. And this is like, I'm changing out the engine in flight and I've caused the plane to crash twice, but don't worry, the plane's back in the air now. And so both like, I really like that variety, actually, that's been really enjoyable, despite the like contact switching is also complicated, but... So speaking of architecture, I have a particular question that I'd like to run by you in terms of how to approach a particular new feature and modeling and just kind of like walk you through the feature and see how you would approach building it because I have some initial ideas. Some of it's already been built. It's not feeling quite right as to how it's currently modeled. So I'm really intrigued if this is something that you've encountered before or how you would approach it. 
So to describe the world first, and then we can add to it. So in the current state, um, just to sort of like make up an application that we could talk about, let's say that we have an app that has users and those users can have existing tasks, like to-dos, tasks that they're supposed to complete. And then someone can send additional tasks to that user that they would also like them to complete to add to their task list. But before they accept those new tasks, they really want to review their existing task and they want to review the new task. They want to be able to essentially merge those two lists. So to be able to accept the new task or ignore them and do nothing with them, also edit existing tasks as sort of like a way to handle that merge state where if someone sent you like a new task that's to do something that's very similar to the thing you're already doing, you could update the existing one to reflect the new details, but maybe ignore the incoming one that someone has sent you. So that's the overall goal is essentially like merging these two lists and they have two different sources, one that you created belongs to you and then one that's coming from somebody else. And then you can make all these changes at once and then stage all those changes and then you can submit that. So it will persist all the changes that you've made to your task list. So starting there, an existing or an incoming task will have some details with that task that doesn't live on the existing task model. And I'm curious from your perspective, if you're rendering a list and you've got those two different types of tasks, how would you start with rendering that list? Would you create a new object that can represent the new and incoming task? Would you have a list that has just both types mixed in it? And then I have some follow-up questions, but I figure we'll pause there. Mm. Well, I think the first question or the first topic that comes to mind is in terms of like the raw data model, and I don't know if you're working all the way down at that level, but this scares me into the place of is this single table inheritance versus do we do this with polymorphic modeling so like are these two different records other person to do and my to do and those are two distinct things or do we have one table which is to do's and it has a column that says is this mine or is this theirs i don't know if that's a thing that you've like where that's at in the consideration but immediately as you started to say this i started to think about that and i still don't have an answer to that question also i've never known which of those i like better I'm with you. And yeah, I can add a a little bit more context to it as well. So I started with the approach of where, so if we have tasks, that's already a model that exists in our application, and then potentially adding like a source column. So that way we know, is this incoming? Is it existing? And that would work, except then we do have the additional columns or attributes that we want to store on that record as well. So then it gets a little hairy because then we're going to be adding these columns to an existing task model, but we don't necessarily need those columns for a regular task. It's only for the incoming task. So I went ahead and crossed that off the list. I didn't want to go down that road. So right now, the approach that we're using, we also have an API that's going to accept, that's going to create those tasks, edit those tasks. So right now we have an API that is sending down all the tasks and all the incoming tasks. And then the front end is creating an object that can right now represent either. So this object can represent a new task and it can also represent an existing task. So it kind of gets back into that wonky space though, where we have this record, it's not saved at the database layer. So we don't have any columns that we've introduced that we don't need to save. But we do have an object that now has some attributes that are relevant for one type of task, but not relevant for the other. But that does make the list rendering really nice because then we have this one form that we can essentially send these objects to that form. We can render all the fields, we can update, and then as we're sending it back to the API, because the API is expecting a particular type, is expecting that task, we are then remapping that sort of like new state 
we'll call it like a mergeable task. We're mapping a mergeable task back over to the expected task record or task model. So then that way we can serialize it and send it to the APIs the API would expect. But it feels a little funky because we're essentially like getting two types of tasks from the API. We're mapping it to this like third, like mergeable task, rendering that to the user, editing, staging those changes. And then before we send all of the changes to the API, we're essentially remapping that mergeable task back to a regular task so we can persist it. That's interesting. My inclination of late has been to try wherever possible to pull complexity from client side to the server side. And I know that there are folks that have sort of different opinions on that. You can make a richer experience on the client if the client can be smarter, but the server is just inherently more powerful. It knows everything. It has access to the database. Like It's just easier to do the hard stuff there, in my experience. And so that's the place that I would want to do that. And what you're describing is like, you get all this data on the client side, you turn it into better models, you work with it for a while, and then you have to deserialize or serialize, whichever way you want to describe that back. That feels like the client being so much smarter than the dumb backend. And I would probably poke at that just because of my like personal biases, uh, my desire to have the more complex the logic, the more I want to push it onto the server side. But again, that's that's sort of my inclination, not necessarily, I think, an obviously better or worse you know, trade-off. But also the thing that you're building sounds very complicated where you have this like multi-form thing that's merging two different types of to-dos and you can like merge them and you can edit them and you can do all of that and all of that happens and then you post that back to the like that's very complicated and so if you want that fidelity of client-side experience maybe you need fancier logic on the client side so i don't know yeah it is it is a bit complicated as you were saying and it is a flow that we do need to support for certain reasons in the sense like the fact that you can sort of like edit everything but then just stage those changes and then submit it at once that added some interesting complexity to it and it is an existing application and i think that has altered some of the approach that we would take because we are trying to leverage some of the existing work so that form where you get to like alter a task we already have logic in place for that so we wanted to reuse that form versus creating a new one because that's complex and enough as well that we didn't want to duplicate that in two places. And then also for how we are persisting the task. So we are trying to leverage the existing code. And I think that has influenced our implementation as well. I do like what you said, because I also fall that way when it comes to I want the API to do all the hard work for me. And I want the client side to do as little hard work as possible. And right now it feels like the client side is much smarter than the API. And it's sort of like, look, just give me these things. The client's like, I'll do all the work that I need to do. And then I'll just send you back the right thing. And I'd rather push that towards the API. And so for fun, we could talk about we just had like a a Greenfield app and we weren't trying to leverage any of the existing code. Do you think you would have the API send down, we'll call them like mergeable tasks, that representation that can be like an incoming task or an existing task for a user, send those down, you can edit, stage changes to those mergeable tasks, and then send that back to the API. And then the API will sort it out for there. Is that sort of where you're leaning? Well, I think one of the questions I would ask is, is this interface worth the complexity that it brings? Because it sounds like a really complicated thing to build. And so if it definitely provides a distinctly better experience for the end user of the application, then cool, it's earned its right to live. But I would definitely examine that very closely because it's that's a like i'm not even sure how i would start to build that thing and deal with all of the various error states like what if one of those has a validation error that's what do i do oh god so it's all of those sort of thoughts that like okay can i just avoid the complexity entirely that's question one 
part of the question then is like, are we definitely doing this with an API or not? And my adventures in inertia land, I would start to consider like, is that a thing that I could leverage here? Um, because it sounds like you have a form that you can interact with in certain ways, but it's not actually doing a ton of back and forth chatter with the API. It's not like holding a bunch of client side state that it's manipulating and then over time modifying values, but it has this local client cache. It's a bunch of data that you can manipulate on the client side and post back that new version of. And so that still sounds like something I could potentially do in inertia. So that's a thing that I would consider. And then I think the third thing I would look at is I find it really difficult to do that pushing logic back to the server thing in a REST API because they inherently are very resource-centric, very minimal, very you know rigid. But GraphQL, I get a lot more flexibility. So if I did want to do the API sort of thing with a more complex client-side app, I would definitely look to GraphQL. And that could potentially, I could have mutations that are specific to this that have a bunch of different possible return values that enumerate all of the different cases or i can have a union interface sort of thing describing the types of these objects and there's a lot of expressiveness that i can get from graphql in order to try and constrain the problem so that's sort of the three things i would consider in sequence definitely starting with the version that is what if we didn't write this though I love that that's the first instinct. Uh, so in our case, I'm being pretty vague and just found like a, a task as like a, a way to talk through this feature. But in our case, what we're building is for like a certification process. So it's very much mandated as to like how this needs to go. It's the first time I've really worked in a world where like the government is giving me software requirements and I need to build software to meet those requirements. So that's a thing. So in this case, yes, unfortunately, we do have to well, now there are there are certain freedoms we have in like the design and, and how we approach it. But there are certain rules of where like you can you need to be able to merge these items. And then you need to be able to see everything before you persist anything before you have those changes go live. So those are like some of the two big points that we need to focus on. And one of the nice things about showing like the existing records in addition to the incoming records is we can let the user do more manual merging. So we are trying to already skimp out on some of the areas that could be more complicated of where we actually have to merge two records for the user. We'd rather just let them do it and say like, hey, this is what you currently have. This is what's incoming. You can make your own decisions from here and stage changes and then save it all in one go. So that's I think we have been really diligent about trying to find ways to make this less complex. And as for the other stuff, I think the more I talk about this out loud with you, it makes me realize some of the decisions that we made surfaces more of the complexity that we're facing around like how tasks get saved, because there's enough complexity that we have made modeling decisions. So we don't have to touch that or we don't have to alter that too much. So I think that could be one of the really interesting bits to sort of like dive into is like, why, why are we nervous about trying to replicate this somewhere else outside of just the reason that we don't want to replicate too much code that's doing the same work but we feel a bit nervous to sort of like take a new approach and be able to like call this from elsewhere so i think that could be one area and that would be worth diving into but yeah it's uh it's been interesting just the whole like having to merge and then having to stage all the edits and then try to persist it and then it was yeah it's a list basically do we let the client do more work and we have two different types of task or do we try to create this third task that can represent the incoming and the existing task and right now I'm doing that second one where I have a third model that can represent both and it's okay I don't love it so mm -hmm. that's why I was curious as to what you would do differently or maybe you would go down this path too and then see what you don't love about it 
quite possibly. I think you know, as I started with the STI versus polymorphic thing, like neither of those are great. They both have drawbacks. And whenever I pick one, I'm always sad that I have to pick that one, even though I know that like the other one would make me sad too. But I think we don't have a great answer to this thing, maybe. Uh, or it's hard. It's a hard thing that you're trying to do. And so it's, you know, there's going to be some, it's like caching. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. One thing that we have done that I've found fun about this is uh, we've had different developers working on this feature together and we have different lists that we're working on. So we'll have like the first list, but then we have another section that's going to be going below it. So one person was implementing the top list. Someone was working on the second pattern below and we both implemented it slightly differently which has turned out to be fun because it works. But it's been interesting to be like, oh, okay, so you approached it this way. These are some of the benefits of how you did it. And then here are some of the benefits for how I did it. So now we have a third one, which then just feels perfect. So now we get to reassess and be like, okay, what are the what are the best takes from like your approach? And then what are the best takes from my approach? And then merge that into a, a third final version. So that part I've really enjoyed because we've been so focused on like, what's the easiest minimal path forward that we can learn more about this code and this feature that we can get it shipped, that we can get someone using it. And then we can keep building on top of that and going back to revisit our decisions. So I've loved that like tight feedback loop to like make it work, see how it goes and then revisit and see what we can improve. That's the dream right there. I'm living in a complicated dream. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm waking up from my complicated dreams and going and scribbling on whiteboards. So uh, here we are. Yeah, I think I'd rather have my merging dreams than your caching dreams. Well, thank you for going on that journey with me. It's something I've been thinking about and wanting your advice. So I just figured I'd be bold and do it live with you and talk through that feature. So I appreciate all the help. My pleasure. Always happy to chat through things. And I will definitely um, return the favor in the form of asking you for architectural guidance in the very near term. This is fun. I love when we do live architecting of our applications. Uh, but on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or I'm at Chris Toomey on Twitter. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at host at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.